Backroom Politics. And good afternoon out there on Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio from Washington, D.C., your nation's capital. It is a hot and sweltering nation's capital. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, uh, she is the former news producer for several networks, including NBC and ABC, currently a... Uh, currently with above the, or how, what is it, Laura? What is the name of the company again? After the whistle, ATW. After, after the whistle, oh, she's now she's now the executive producer at After the Whistle and After the Whistle Productions. She's the one we know as Laura Chavez. Hello, Laura. Welcome back. Hi, Justin. Thank you. Excited to be back. Let's see how this one yes. goes. Yes, and uh, also joining us from her undisclosed location somewhere. Uh, between Cape Cod and Washington, D.C., is our uh, associate producer, Audrey Harrington. Audrey, welcome today. Hello, guys. And, uh, of course, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hey, you know, normally, on the day before Independence Day, uh, this would be a best-of show. Normally, uh, we would do it and run a rerun, wouldn't think twice about it. We would start our uh, vacations with our family, prepare the cookouts, prepare celebrating our nation's birthday. But uh, Audrey and I were talking about it, as, as we do in show prep, and we made the decision that we wanted to do a quick show today because there's a disturbing trend and a disturbing factor that directly affects us here at Backroom Politics. Let's go back to last week. Uh, if you did not see, uh, last week in uh, Annapolis, Maryland, uh, there was a mass shooting, yet another one. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we can't stop those, but at the Annapolis Capitol Gazette, a regional, a local paper covering Anne Arundel County, parts of Prince George's County, which for those of you who are not in the capital region are in Maryland, east of us. Uh, a uh, deranged, which is the only way we can describe them, a deranged gunman entered the newsroom uh, last week and basically, uh, in a senseless act of violence, killed five journalists, or rather four journalists and a, and a, and a staff member there at the Gazette. Uh, this is a guy that has been on their watch list. In fact, it was told at the reception desk that if they ever saw this shooter, if he ever entered the building, he was, they were to call 911. But that's not the important point. The important point here is that, one, journalists were targeted. Now, journalists have a hard enough time in today's environment doing what they do without having to worry about their own physical life and their physical safety. Does that mean that there are not journalists that put yet? There are journalists in our profession that put their lives at risk every day. They cover in war zones. They cover in riots. They cover in uh, you know, dangerous parts of the world. They cover in natural disasters. Uh, these are people that literally put themselves in harm's way on a daily basis to bring you accurate, and informational product to keep you informed about your local community, your state, and the country and the globe around you. The reason why this is important, the reason why I bring this up is, um, after the tragic events, attention to the issue of journalism. Now, first of all, I, I want to begin by focusing on, number one, the, the, the newspaper and the dedicated people that, that lost their lives in this tragic event. Um, Laura, you've, you've worked in the big media spots. Uh, you've worked at the highest level of network news. You've also worked at the local level. How important is a newspaper like the Annapolis Capital Gazette to that community? And, and when it's targeted like that, how, how does it affect their, their readership? 
so that's actually a really interesting point uh, because, I, like you said, I've worked at the local level, I've worked at you know O&Os, and the main thing, like every one of those heartwarming stories you see that people are always wanting more of, you know, of the school teacher in Poughkeepsie that bought her students' classrooms, the, you know, the small town police officer that got into a breakdancing uh, dance-off in a sketchy neighborhood, all of those stories that make you feel good, that make you feel happy, come from those local papers, those local affiliates, those reporters on the street that are talking with people every day who are integrated into that community, which I think is one of the things that sometimes gets lost. You know, yes, you hear a lot about uh, bad news, immigration, and SCOTUS, and all of these other downers, but every almost every good news story you ever receive is from a local newspaper. I think it is one of the, yes, they are dying off and it is tragic, but there are so many, there's such a rich font of knowledge and of hope. And the fact that this would happen in a local newspaper is truly heartbreaking because one of the other things you need to remember, the news community is truly a family. Yes, there are ratings. Yes, there are, you know, um, subscription competitions, there are all of those things, but the bottom line, when you show up to a story, whether you are with NBC, ABC, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, Newsy, any of those different organizations, online, print, anything, you are a family. Well, yes, you are trying to get a scoop. You are also sharing with these people information that is, you know, if someone shows up late to a press conference, you are there for them. You are a support system. And so I've actually been talking with a couple people, uh, both near and far, about how this will impact. Like some of these people, some like Gerald Fishman or Rob Heizan, they were contacts for larger organizations. So I don't think it'll slow anything down. Journalists are wildly determined people, and there's a certain something in your attitude or in your brain that really keeps you going. But I think it it has been truly heartbreaking to see because this is not only hurting, you know, the flow of stories or their contacts, but it's also a personal hit for a lot yeah. of people. Hey, Laura, you know, the, the thing about it is, and, and you would know better than I, uh, I, I, I have never been a quote-unquote journalist. I've been a commentator. I've been a talking head. Uh, I've been a spokesperson, but I've never been a true accredited journalist. And, you know, the ones that I do know that have worked at these type of paper, such as the Annapolis Catholic Gazette, uh, they stay there for a long time, and they don't leave. What is the attraction to a journalist like a Rob Heisen, who, who, who had the credentials to go anywhere in the country he wanted but loved his Capital Gazette family? What is the attraction for a really hardcore journalist to stay in a newspaper like the Capital Gazette? Uh, it really does become a home. Uh, there's actually, uh, my first job was in Peoria, Illinois, and we had an anchor there named Bob Schieffer, and he was, br or not Bob Schieffer, sorry, Bob Larson, and he was brilliant and funny and smart, and he had, it was the only job he had ever had. He started as, you know, a PA and worked his way up, and we used to say, you know, if you haven't figured out, you need to figure out whether you want to be a Bob Larson or a Bob Schieffer because those are the two paths in journalism where you're going to be happy. You either go to the network, become like the big name, or you really plant roots and you become a part of that community because that's the thing a lot of people don't, don't necessarily think about. Yes, they're telling you, um, you know, the news every day, but a lot of people don't, under, don't even think about how intimate that is. If you think about even just the way you um, – consume news in the morning. It, it's going to sound very strange to think about, but think about the things you're wearing. Think about the things you're doing. Think about, you know, that voice that you're reading. This is sometimes the first human contact that you get in the day. You are making breakfast for your kids or you're, you know, getting lunch ready for someone or you're just sitting around in, you know, your robe brushing your teeth. Um, this is a very intimate space that people don't actually think about all the time. So being a local reporter, you are very much a part of 
every person's life in that community. You are a name that is on the tip of their tongue when they hear a story. You have become, you will stay in that community because you are I mean, mean, they hear the name Rob Hyacin. They don't go with, oh, my God, that's, you know, the famed author in Miami, uh, Miami Herald uh, journalist Carl Hyacin's brother. In Annapolis, Carl is actually Rob's brother. The connection is with Rob, and he did not make a ton of money at that paper. Is this – I mean, these are five people that truly showed – a love for their profession at the most basic level. Are, are we losing touch with that law these days? I, I, I aspire to say no, but I have a tendency, in certain pockets, no. I feel like there are a lot of people who truly value the truth, who truly value good journalism, who understand the grace and deft hand it takes to write a composed and balanced story, to deliver something with a a fairness to both sides, whether you think one side is disgusting or not. Um, Unfortunately, I feel like since we are getting so many talking heads with larger-than-life opinions, and we are in a very polarized society right now, a lot of it is getting uh, diluted. I don't want to say it's going away. I just want to say it's getting diluted. It's still there. I am friends with many people who still beat the pavement every day to try and get some story, to try and get some scoop, to try and get to the truth of it, because it really is a love. Um, My mom and my dad both used to tell me that journalism is an addiction because you just want more of it. If it is in your blood, you don't go on vacation. You have no need for a vacation at times because every day you're still consuming news. You want to know. It's a thirst for knowledge that will never be quenched. And I know that I'm positive there are still quite a few people out there that are true journalists that fight the good fight. It's just right now it is a very sexy time to be a person, be a, be the person shouting the loudest. I, I mean. I, I guess, you know, and, and Audrey, I want to bring you in on this. You know, Audrey, you, you've looked at, you know, kind of what we do here back in politics. You've been with us now uh, for several months, and you've kind of seen how we do things. And you've been exposed to, you know, the the press, the media, the journalism community here in the national capital region. Uh, I, I mean, when we look at, you know, working as a journalist at a small paper, is that sexy to a young student who's trying to figure out their way in how do I get involved in media? Um, Although I'm not a journalism major, so that's hard to speak to. Um, It's definitely a different world being down here in D.C. It's really hard to ignore the news. I have friends back home and at school who go through days and weeks without knowing what is going on outside of our town or on our campus. So, and being down here, you don't have that. Everybody has a general idea of what's going on. And I think back home, I have people who pay attention to the local papers. They see what's happening in the town, what's happening in Boston and the city and all of those things. So I think it's just a different level of engagement, whether you want to be engaged on a macro level of your entire country and how we're affecting other nations or how just your city mayor is impacting your local town. Um, I think, though, Laura is right. There is that thirst that I've seen from people to know what is happening. Um, And if I can actually, sorry, if I can jump in on that. And one of the, uh, Audrey brings up a very fair and very valid point that I kind of want to expand on a little bit, if I may. Um, the, the usual way to get up to a network level in journalism is you're not going to necessarily walk into uh, NBC or 30 Rock and say, I want to be the Today Show host. You have to work your way up there. And what happens to a lot of journalists, my, and many of my friends included, is you'll start in a smaller market, and then every two years or every five years you grow and you go to the next market. But what happens to you when you're in that smaller market is you fall in love with the community. You fall in love with 
you get your sources, you under you meet the dispatch callers and you call them every morning and you say, Hey Jamie, hey, how are the kids? You know, sorry, oh uh, you got the overnight shift tonight, that's too bad. Well, did anything happen? And that way you're ready for the morning news at, you know, four AM or whatever time it starts. There is a real love for community that a lot of people get while they're everyone aspires to be the um Savannah Guthrie's or, you know, the Nora O'Donnell's, but you get sometimes you get snagged in these really wonderful places. And something just your heart finds a home in journalism in that space. So working at a local paper, no, it's not sexy at all, to be perfectly honest. I mean, you want to be the person who's, you know, got to – you want to be Chuck Todd a lot of the time. Yeah. But if you can find that home in your journalism community, it's really fulfilling to your soul. See, here's the thing to me, and, and as somebody who grew up, uh, it grew up around a small town newspaper where I grew up in Massachusetts uh, in a small town about uh, 45 miles south of Boston, 30 miles east of Providence, Rhode Island. We had a New Bedford, Massachusetts-based paper called the Standard Times, and it was very much a local paper covering the southeast coast of of the Bay State. And that was a big source of news to us. That to us was the New York Times. That was the big newspaper of our area, at least for me growing up. And I have an affinity for that, for that paper. Uh, you know, in our local town of Mattapoisett, we had a local weekly called the Presto Press, and it covered everything from selectmen, town hall committee meetings to school boards to police blotters and stuff like that, as did the Standard Times, but at a much larger macro level, uh, this kind of honed in on the town itself, and people were dedicated to that. And it's still being printed uh, today under a different name, but that paper still exists. And I remember the importance of that paper. And then I go out to Oklahoma. Uh, for those who've listened to the show for a while, remember, I spent time out there running a congressional campaign in, o- in eastern Oklahoma, and I was home based in a town called Claremore, which ironically was the hometown of Will Rogers. And the paper that Will Rogers started at, the Claremore Daily Progress, is still a small town local newspaper, small newsroom, in that is still being published today as we speak. And I remember going into that newsroom and seeing people that had been there for 20, 25 years thinking, why haven't you gone to Tulsa or Oklahoma City or Dallas or Houston, for that matter? They stay because, to them, that's the purest form of journalism that they'll ever, ever experience without having some sort of big-time editorial interference or big-time uh, revenue interference or, or corporate interference. It, it, it's just remarkable. And I guess that goes to your point, uh, Laura. When, when you talk about these small-town papers, you know, we don't expect you – know, if, if we heard, and God forbid this should ever happen, if we had heard that this had happened – at uh, the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Dallas Morning News or the Boston Globe, you know, we would immediately be as shocked, but we don't expect this at a small-town paper. Does that – I mean, are we living in a dream world to expect that maybe, you know, a journalist at the Capitol Gazette was no less in threat of their lives doing what they do? than somebody at the Wall Street Journal? I think it's, unfortunately, it's become a bit of a gray area, the entire idea of journalism. You've got people at a national level and you've got people at a local level, and you could be the wedding beat reporter at a small town Oregon paper, and in a lot of people's eyes, you are still a part of this fake news world. So there isn't any sort of massive line of delineation between 
you know, political reporters, crime reporters, lifestyle reporters. It's just all fake news journalism, and that kind of speaks to the climate that we're in. But, I mean, in a perfect world, yes, I would love to say that if you are in a small town, you should be, I mean, anyone in any newsroom should be kept safe and allowed to do their job. But I would like to think that if you are in a small town, separated from a, the the larger national conversation, I would love to think that, you know, you can be safe in doing your job, but I think that's a really romanticized idea. Um, I, I actually grew up as well in a kind of a smaller town in Indiana where I remember my parents, every Sunday we would all spread out in the living room and everyone would take their different uh, section of the newspaper and we would read. Right. It was right. And it was beautiful. And then, you know, my sister and I would switch sections and my parents would switch sections and there would be those all those coupons and it was this really, like, Norman Rockwell moment of my childhood that was based around the local paper and it was great. But that's not how news is consumed as much anymore. And it's and it's almost wishful thinking to think we could get back to that space of 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 a sort of innocence. I think that it's great that we've got so much information being shared, but it would be we would be very it would be very difficult to get to a place where we were looking at a pure journalism aspect anymore. Even yeah. if you look at the way different papers are being bought up by, you know, larger corporations. And, and we do oh, just go ahead, Audrey. And we go do ahead, have Rear Admiral Ken and Dan Lipner with us, and I'd love to hear your guys' uh, perspective on is the news still, do we have an innocence there, either in small papers or big organizations like the New York Times and the Boston Globe? I don't know, Ken, if you have any comments, and then Dan. Well, uh, uh the first thing I'd say is that um, um, my exposure to journalism um, has been uh, much greater since joining the, the backroom politics team. Uh, I will tell you that um, as a Navy officer, um, we, we, we kept you guys, we kept journalists at arm's length. Um, and, uh, and I remember, I remember, you know, then the first Gulf war, um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think we thought of journalism journalists as, as the enemy of the people, but uh, we also were concerned that uh, if the entire story was not told, then the American people uh, would walk away from um, an impression uh, that was less accurate and sometimes less appealing than we would want them to walk away from uh, the, the incident with. And then after I became an admiral, um, um, there's a school that they, where they teach us how to give a press briefing, and um, and um, and one of the one of the one of the things that they that they tell you is if you don't know something, say you don't know, rather than you know try and and and, uh, and spin something. Um, but back to the the backroom politics exposure, uh, I think because of guys like Justin and John Allen. Um, uh, I, I've, I've got a just a, a huge amount of respect uh, for the, um, uh, the the press. Um, you know, I, I, I quite frankly was was quite aghast the first time that I heard the president of the United States refer to the press as the enemy of the people, um, and and I was really quite happy to see uh, networks like CNN and uh, and MSNBC run stories um, or commercials with the voices of past presidents uh, commending the press on, on uh, basically shining the light of day on things that, that needed to, to be, uh, to be discussed. Um, on, the, the, on the, on the small time paper side, most people would be very interested to know that plebe here at the Naval Academy is, is a crucible. And one of the things you have to do every day is consume two major news articles in one sports article to be discussed the entire day uh, with upperclassmen, and so even as an upperclassman, when when you're uh, when you don't have to have the uh, that responsibility as a plea, you still have to have read enough to be able to have an intelligent discussion with the uh, the freshmen that uh, that are under that uh, that uh, that that requirement. And you know we consumed things like the Washington Post and the Baltimore Sun back in those days, 
And uh, I was really quite happy to see the post was still around and the sun was still around when I moved back into the area. Yeah. Hey, um, Dan Whitmer, you know, we've we've seen we've seen there be almost contentious relationships between the media and politicians, whether it be media in the White House uh, or media and in the Hill or media in other aspects of the administration. Uh, but this is the first time I can remember that we've seen just an open targeting of the, or the, or just a calculated dismantling of the free press. Am I going overboard on that? No, you're not going overboard on that at all. But it's important to, when you look at the press and both at the local and national level, I always tell folks that there are different creatures with different jobs, but it's everyone has a job to do. When you're talking about local press, and this is the the paper in Annapolis or local papers around the country, they are the people minding the store locally when there's a whatever construction projects whatever local government is doing it's their job to keep tabs on those issues and those things going on for their community specifically just like the national papers and national press or national media their job is to focus on issues that affect the country at a more macro level when the local press isn't there at all, nobody minding the store. Part of the reason for the contentious nature of politics with the press or the press with anything really is the press has a job to do and their job is to, to report what's going on and also to sell papers. And frequently the reporting what's going on and selling papers involves pointing out what's going on that isn't right. And hence, you have the contentious nature because Donald Trump, local mayors, governors, uh, members of Congress, all of which don't like somebody pointing out things that are going wrong or going contrary to how they would like it portrayed. That's the press's job. And from the consumer side of things, it's also our job to see that. Now, you can argue that not enough information is being shared on the positive side of things. Often, you'll hear the consumers of media say, you know what, I, I don't read the news because it's always negative. Okay. But how often do you just want to see nothing but green skies and the trees are blooming and everything's wonderful? Does that really do anything to make the world a better place tomorrow? I would argue the answer is no, but that's also the price that we pay, that, that, that negative information into that positive information, that's the price. That's why the amendment is the First Amendment. It's the democracy of ideas, getting all that information out there. And to the earlier comment that was made about the just conveying lots of information, sort of. So the people sharing information on Facebook and tweets and whatnot, th that's information, absolutely, but it's not distilled in any way. And the purpose of a, a true press and true media is to distill that information and also to fact check it. And when that isn't done, that's when the media loses credibility. But at most levels across the country, the press is pretty good. They actually, while they're always tainted, you can lean a little left or a little, a little right, the press predominantly does a good job of getting the information out there for people to consume. You can, you can argue that the volume right. isn't always balanced, but it is there if you want to get it. And, and Laura, let me, let me go to you, and, and I, I'm, I'm going to be blunt about this question, and I apologize up front. It, with the advent of the 24-hour news cycle, you know, we, we, it, it strikes me that we have gotten away – from the quality journalism to who can get on air first. And at the same time, we've seen the 24-hour news stations 
do their hardcore journalism at times when there's not a lot of viewership. Your 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. run, and then prime time is for the talking head pundits, whether it's uh, Rachel Maddow, whether it's Sean Hannity, whether it's Tucker Carlson or Lawrence O'Donnell or uh, Don Lemon. Have we have we just fed a monster so large that we've diluted the fourth estate to an extent? Um, that is a, I mean, as a journalist, that's a difficult question for a number of reasons. Why? Partially, I'm sorry? I didn't know why. Go ahead. Why, please. Um, so I, I like to think of myself as a pure journalist. I work really hard whenever I approach a story to make sure that I'm speaking to someone from both sides to make sure that it's at least as balanced as I can make it. Um, you know, you have to put in a lot of legwork for that. And in order to do that, that does take time. You actually, like, need to consume as much information as possible, digest it as quickly as possible, and then get it out as quickly as possible in order to make sure it's still fresh, you're still passionate, you're still energized. Um, the 24-hour news cycle has... I mean, it's genuinely changed the game, and I think everyone can agree with that. Um, I think the part of the ratings that so many of those peop- so many uh, news out- cable news outlets want is the only reason that you'll see the Don Lemons, the Sean Hannitys, the Anderson Coopers, you know, that you'll see them in that space. If you do watch, uh, you know, they are the- news though. No, well, they tr- they have an aspect of news. They have a lot of punditry, and I will give you that. But I do think that if you watch, if you actually uh, break down a segment, it always starts with the facts. You know, it's an introduction, then the facts of the story, and then they bring in some experts for their opinions, and then they try to wrap it up again, reminding people what the actual core of the story is, and they thank their guests and they move on. Um, if you only watch the actual facts and that like introductory introductory segment, you'll walk away with a lot of information and you'll walk away saying like, okay, I kind of get this. I have a baseline knowledge. You won't be able to speak to it at, you know, on a TED talk, but you'll definitely be able to speak to it intelligently around the water cooler. Where it gets fuzzy is when you bring in the round table discussions, because that's pretty much opinion based in all honesty. It's not meant to educate it's meant to give more information, but it comes at a cost. It comes with a healthy dose of opinion. It comes with a healthy dose of you're right, I'm wrong. It comes with a healthy dose of the ever-present us versus them conversation that's happening pretty much with every conversation going on in politics right now. So it's really the the Pollyanna in me wants to say no. The, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock time slots are wonderful. They help move the dialogue forward. They are nice and balanced, but in all honesty, they're not. And, the, and, and by the way, and, and Laura, by the way, I, I don't want to just focus on, because I want to move on to the other subject in the last 25 minutes we have on this abbreviated show. Actually, um, can I throw a question in here real quick? You, well, so, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, real quick, Dan. Because what I don't want to do is just make this about the twenty-four hour news station. The 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 that advent is, of, about that. Okay, go ahead, go ahead, Dan. So one of the things that's kind of been floating out there is what what I refer to as the foxification of the news, and we've already kind of slipped into it ever so accidentally in this conversation. And uh, as Laura mentioned, the both sides of the issue suggesting there are only two. And not necessarily saying there are only of, two. That, that's, but that's one of the dangers. Uh, and just even in common parlance, the this or that, as, as though that truly flushes out the entirety of something. And when Fox came along, it sort of changed the dynamics of media uh, that I think it's important to make note of. So less the 24-hour news cycle than the the polarization of the news cycle. You've, you've always had media competing with each other, whether or not it's uh, major daily newspapers or even uh, TV stations. But the idea of having this kind of hard political split um, on with one network 
has changed, at least in my perspective, media across the entire landscape. But, but Dan, let me let me address that real quick because because one of the things again, and this is what I was going to say before uh, we went to you, is I don't want this to be a bashing of the the three major. 24-hour news networks here in the United States. There are other, I mean, the competition, I mean, everybody's a journalist now. If you put up a blog and a byline and something that even remotely looks like news, it's, you're, you know, they're saying, oh, you're getting credit on a Facebook post or a Twitter feed. And now the competition with not just NBC, CBS, and ABC, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, you now have, Laura mentioned a, a newcomer, Newsy. Uh, you have uh, Breitbart. You have BuzzFeed. You have The Daily Caller. You have all these Internet-based, Axios, Vox, Politico. All of these different media outlets competing for the same scoop. And I guess the question is, does all of this competition, is all this competition healthy for the community? And uh, I'll start with you, Advocate. Is this healthy for the community? And is it, I want to go to Laura and ask the question, is it healthy for journalism? Let me start with you, Advocate. Is it healthy uh, I, for the community? I, I think competition is always healthy. Uh, I think in the, uh, the free market of ideas, um, there, there, there should always be um, a, uh, a, 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 a difference of, of how uh, news media might uh, bring a story. Now, the problem with that is that you have to have a, uh, an electorate that is willing to hear the truth. Uh, whether it's good news or bad news, and I think you know that we have seen in the better part of the last two years that that is not that is not the case. Um, do I think it's hurting? No, I don't. I think it really depends on um, whether the the organization um, can can set aside their agenda from reporting the facts, and it also depends on whether the people taking in the information have the ability to filter uh, opinion from facts. I saw a science fiction show some number of years ago called Earth 2. And in this, in this show, um, this colony was voting whether they were going to break away from the Earth. And there was a debate going on. And at the bottom of the screen, a computer projected the words opinion or fact. I, thought, I think that we're probably at a stage in this country where we, where we could use that. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Uh, Laura, let me go to you. Is this much competition good for journalism? You know, I actually, I kind of agree with uh, Admiral Ken. I think this much competition is good. I think what's really hurting us is the fact that is the fact that facts are being questioned um, and they're being and opinions are being disguised as fact. And I think that's where journalism really is getting hurt. There's a real need for honesty in this country, and journalism is supposed to do that. So anytime you have someone coming on a show who's just calling names, who is saying, you know, who's, you know, arguing the size of an inaugural crowd where there's very clearly a fact there, I think that's where you get into real danger because every time you question that, good for you, keep you going strong but you do get tired and there's a lot of fatigue that's going around because you're being does, told you're wrong. Laura, wrong let me jump mouth. in real quick. Let me jump in real quick. Does that fatigue make us lazy consumers of journalism, whether it's good or bad journalism? Yes, it does. I it think does. if, yes, in short answer, yes. I think it is very easy right now to, hop on Facebook or Twitter or, and follow 100 people that have the exact same opinion as you and just have your opinion reinforced every day. And all of a sudden you will start to essentially drink the Kool-Aid, pardon the expression. But if you were by to the way, say, okay. And by okay. the way, they're not a sponsor. They're not a sponsor, so you're good. Oh, exactly. I'll find another catchphrase next time. Um, but 
if you were to find, instead of 100 people who already agree with you, find 25 that you agree with, cool, 25 more that have the opposite stance, and then 25 more of a differing stance, and 25 more of a differing stance. I think no one is, I think because of the fire hose that we are drinking from in this news cycle right now, no one feels like they have time to fact check as a consumer. They don't have, they have enough time to watch a... But that's really the thing. Yeah, Dan Lipner, go ahead. So I, I was just sitting here thinking, trying to think of an appropriate analogy. And using sports as an appropriate analogy uh, with with uh, something that people consume, sports and quality sports at different levels, from major league, college, minor league, uh, amateur. But the average consumer of of any of those products probably isn't good enough to put a team together or really judge the talent of all the athletes on the field on their own. They got help. They got help from organizations that that filtered the players from one level to another level to to eventually the highest level. The the fire hose that consumers are looking at for 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 news because there is so much isn't being filtered now, and this is where they need help. And to Admiral Ken's point, I I do agree. More is generally better. However, still helping people see where where something is credible or not credible. So, yes, there can be opinion out there, but if it's opinion based on nonsense, that needs to be called out and saying, listen, this is not a thing. However, opinion based on the facts that we all share, yes, that is, that is more than worthy of debate and the full public discourse for policy solutions or to look for any other truth to flush those things out. But people need help, and I don't blame normal people for finding it challenging. Or even, I'm not even certain I'm willing to call them lazy, because normal people have lives and don't necessarily talk about the news on a uh, weekly radio show for fun like we're doing. So it's tough, and I don't know what the answer is, but clearly folks need help distinguishing the nonsense from what's real. But yeah, you know, um, and, go ahead, go ahead, Laura. Sorry. Um, sorry, just really quickly. Uh, yes, and that would be amazing. And if you think, I think it was a little over a year ago, CNN attempted something with their lower third, where Trump was at a rally or some sort of speech, and he said something, and then immediately the lower third on the screen was like a correction to that. It essentially called him out. He said, you know, the sky is yellow, and then on the bottom it said the sky is actually blue, courtesy, you know, this organization. And it started citing the correction. But in that, people had already decided CNN is far too left, they're against, they're fake news. So people, even if you are giving them that, that uh, balance, that, hey, actually, this is the truth, there's already that uh, stench of opinion on everyone, really. It's hard to find a news broadcast that people trust. So if I am gonna, if I am a Fox News watcher and I decide, oh, I should check what Sean Hannity said, odds are I'm going to check it with, you know, Breitbart or you know another, um, another, another organization that already follows my views, which is making it a little more difficult because people aren't necessarily open to fact checking with, you know, alternative. Uh, news sources to what they're usually hearing. So I think that's kind of the weird walk that we're in right now. Or one I of also, the weird. I also, I also, yeah, okay, I, go ahead. I vividly remember watching um, presidential candidate debates in this past election, and various organizations would say, hey, if you're concerned about any facts that you hear during this, come to our website, we'll do live fact-checking. And I think that was an instance again, to build on what Laura was saying, where news organizations became polarized because if you were for one candidate and a certain news cycle or news station was saying, he's not or she is not speaking facts, we're going to fact check them on that, you became to distrust that secondary source almost because the candidate was your primary source and you wanted to believe what they were saying in front of your own eyes live on television versus what a secondary source was quote-unquote fact checking. Right, right, right. 
But I, I want to go. I want to go to the heart of why I was so adamant about doing this show for an hour today and talking about the subject we are today. Um, uh, the day after the Capitol Gazette shooting, they put out uh, the, the the owners of the Annapolis Capitol Gazette, which is the Baltimore Sun, the, the editorial staff and the newsroom at the Annapolis Capitol Gazette made the decision that they were going to put out a newspaper the day after five of their colleagues had been shot in front of them. And I thought that's a tremendous, tremendous courage and tremendous, tremendous uh, resolve that they were not going to be beaten. Um, I took the headline and posted it on my Facebook page, and I said, all I said was it had the, it had the headline, and the caption said, journalists were targeted, period. A president that calls the press an enemy of the state, period. Words have meaning, period. I cannot read a lot of, and I did this as an open Facebook post. I cannot tell you the number of, of, of uh, you know, all I can say is pro-Trump, because that's what they were, pro-Trump supporters that were at best uncivil, at worst uh, possibly criminal. But the biggest thing I want to do is this, the president's words and calling out the press and using terms like and capitalizing on terms like fake news and calling out journalism as an enemy of the people. The media is an, you know the media is an enemy of the state. That those words have meaning. Now, I got a litany of people saying, "Oh, now you're just accusing." Stop with that BS. The president didn't tell. I had never said that the president would ever tell this guy to go at a local newspaper in Annapolis. But my question is to the table, do, does the words of the president, do those words as he is the occupant of the bully pulpit, does his words have meaning? May I go first? Dan Lipner. Oh, sorry. Dan Whitner. Of course it has meaning. And the the, the, the president in an ideal world in, uh, is supposed to represent the, 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 the best of us, or at least protect all of us who, even those of us who don't agree with him, and including the press. Again, it is the first amendment to the Constitution, the freedom of the press. Uh it, it matters, and it, how people take it, how people respond to it, that's ultimately on them. But taking a cue from the president's own mouth uh, is where some people are going, and it's not good. It's dangerous, and I really wish he would stop. I mean, it was it made big news when you know Dick Cheney made a a uh, offhand remark. Uh, about a reporter calling him a major league insert uh, dirty word there, or even a, a George Herbert Walker Bush uh, making a comment about uh, reporters on the ground in Iraq during the first Gulf War. That was so tame compared to what this president is doing and how this president is riling up his crowd it's dangerous and it matters. Justin? Yeah, go ahead. So the, the day that this happened, um, uh, I, I, I made the comment to my, my wife that, you know, for most people uh, with the exception, of maybe Dan Lipman on his call, we're, we're rational people. And when we hear uh, silliness, like, you know, the stuff that the president has said, you know, we can separate uh, that from 
um, a call. We can separate that as being silliness versus a call to action. But there is there is a a there is a a, a level of, of illness in this country that cannot be ignored, and they they hear this and they act on it, and you know. So yeah, can you blame quote blame the president for this for this this um, for this shooting that happened last week in Annapolis? No, you can't blame him directly, but making comments like the one like the ones that he's made don't help. And would it be best if he you know if he had this opinion to keep it to himself? Absolutely. Um, would it be even better if he recognized the importance of the of the press to our democracy? That would be fantastic. Um, but the fact of the matter is, there's there, there's 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 a there's a small, very violent, um, uh, ill group of people in this country that will act on hearing stuff like that. And you know, and and, uh, and similarly speaking, you know, the president has 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 not been uh, that uh, welcoming to people of color, and he's made comments. And I wrote about you know an incident that took place you know not two two blocks from the White House. That I don't think would have happened um, in, uh, in in a, in a different set of uh, political circumstances. So yeah, it, it words matter. Words matter. Yeah. So it's uh, yes, words very seriously have consequences. I have several uh, speaking personally. No, I have several uh, friends who, many of whom are reporters in the Washington D.C. area. And I've received phone calls from them asking me to look over their resume because the actual process of going and reporting has become so hostile toward them. People openly shout things at them. They're, you know, it's, it's a dramatically different than what it was even three, five years ago. It is now a, and that's in the U.S., that is in Washington, D.C., Virginia, Maryland, Oklahoma, California, you know, several states in the U.S., being a reporter has become a strangely dangerous position because people are so openly mean to you and hopefully and openly aggressive. I mean, if you look at the way Katie Tour, Katie Tour was treated on the campaign um, circuit or even just I think it was like a week or two ago, the way Jim Acosta was openly heckled at a rally, it's not a space where journalists feel open to just go into communities anymore, but that's the job uh, as a really strange and uh, odd side note. I was actually having friends. One of my dear friends is a reporter in the Middle East and he's in the U S on a book tour with his wife and he works for um, a conservative news agency. And he said that he was like going out to dinner with, a couple of his friends in DC and we all worked together at another organization and we've all gone on to different places. People were coming up to him and being openly aggressive. And he immediately knew like, these are Washingtonians. I get it. They don't like me. Um, and then he would go out in like parts of Maryland and people were being mean to the people, to the other reporters. And it was just so clear that like nowhere you could go, were you safe from people just coming up and openly telling you they hate you, hoping that you, they, you die, um, asking, oh, is that your child that you're sitting with? Yes, that is. He just had a child with his wife who's on a book tour, and that child, all of a sudden, he was hyper aware that like people were taking note of not only him but his family, and they were making very aggressive comments towards him. And he's by no means like, a strange, like, he's a big guy. He would have been able to protect himself. I'm sure he's very tough. But he was in the Middle East, and he said he felt more threatened here being a journalist than there, albeit he's a very safe, he's in a very safe place, all things considered where he is, you know, he's in the compound and all that. But, like, there's very, I can't think of a reason why you would feel a more protected environment in the, serving as a reporter in the Middle East for the United States than coming over here to support your wife on a book tour. It's right. bizarre. And a lot of people are sending resumes around saying, hey, we're actually thinking of getting out. This is getting too intense for me. So the fact that, and, and, yeah. and, and I get the impression, Laura, that, that 
we are on the cusp of, and, and this is what bothers me, is the, I, um, as a Republican, look, I get the fact that the media is not always coming. There's always been a slightly left of center stance to the general media, and that's something that we've always accepted. And we knew the journalists we could go to, like a Bill Crystal or Charles Krauthammer, if we needed some right conservative spin on something, we know who to go to. We could go to the Wall Street Journal. We could go to certain people at the New York Times. But what I'm afraid of is that it has gotten so bad that, Laura, to your point, we might be experiencing almost a talent or a brain drain. And we're going to lose all the true hardcore journalists, and we're just going to have a bunch of news aggregators. Is that a real threat? I think there will be, I mean, speaking personally, I think there's always going to be a group of hardcore journalists who are willing to fight the good fight, who are going to get down in the ditches. And, I mean, hopefully we'll never have anything like the Capitol Gazette again, but they're going to be willing to fight for the truth. When you sign up to be a journalist, you are doing exactly that. You are saying, I'm going to fight for the truth. I'm going to bring my best and most level conscious self to this story, whether I believe in abortion or I don't believe in abortion. I'm going to make an argument for, I'm just going to put the facts out there and let someone else decide. The issue that we keep running into is that, and I I say this with a, a heavy heart, great journalism is, it takes a lot of great journalism to beat a small amount of bad opinions. So you can have someone on either side of the aisle saying an inflammatory statement that is wildly inaccurate and totally untrue, and then you can have 50 amazing, great journalistic articles, but people are only going to hear that one opinion, and they're going to take it. And and to your point, Laura, here's what bugs me, is you look at a great journalist like any, any any of the four that lost their lives in Annapolis. Okay, let's take, for example, Rob Hyacin or, or, or Fleischman or, or, or whoever. Uh, you know, you look at Carl Fleischman, he was there for, he was at that table for the better part of two decades. And yet these are people that literally dedicated themselves to the truest, purest former journalism. And for every one Rob Hyacin, who maybe gets 500 or 1,000 people to look at his news articles every day. We as true, we, and I'm not even going to speak myself, let me rephrase that. True journalists, my friends who are true journalists, have to fight ignorant, ignorant jackasses like an Alex Jones. And that, to me, is one of the great American tragedies on top of that, it is, it is organizations like Alex Jones and his group of thugs that proves the fact that my comment about the ignorance and the laziness of our electorate proves true. I am not an apologist for, for the media. If a friend of mine, and I've done it before, and my friends who listen know who you are, there are friends of mine who have made statements that have been inaccurate, and I call them out on I don't call them fake news. I think that they may have just gotten their sources wrong, but I've called them out on it, and they've corrected it. But what the environment that we're creating now is such a promotion of ignorance, and it dilutes the importance of having a free media in this country as a fourth estate, we are really diving into dangerous, dangerous territory that this country cannot afford to have. And that's why I wanted to do this show today. On behalf of uh, Audrey Houghton, Audrey, thanks for putting this together so quickly. Thanks for jumping on the air with us. Uh, As always, joining me as I do every Tuesday, Admiral Ken Carradine, thank you. Dan Littler, thank you. 
Uh, Laura Chavez, thank you very much. Thanks for being a part of the show. We love having you. Uh, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back Tuesday for a regular edition of Backroom Politics. Um, on this Independence Day, when we celebrate our country's uh, birthday, please, please, please remember the following. Gerald Fishman, 61, editor, editor, editorial page editor. Rob Hyacinth, 59, assistant editor for news. John McNamara, 56, staff writer. Rebecca Smith, 34, sales assistant. Wendy Winters, 65, I special publication. Have a great week. This has been Back from Politics. Have a great Tuesday and happy 4th of July.